Hi, and welcome to episode number 13 of the Crypto Chick Podcast, your inside resource for the latest blockchain and crypto trends and news. I'm your host, the Crypto Chick, Rachel Wolfson. Today, I'm interviewing the CEO of IOHK, Cardano founder and former co-founder of Ethereum, Charles Hoskinson. In this episode, Charles explains all the elements required for building a systematic blockchain. According to Charles, protocol development will become less flawed through mathematical proofs and code. Charles also goes into detail as to how blockchain and cryptocurrency will change the world by providing financial access to billions of people across the globe. And Charles speaks about IOHK's latest enterprise blockchain project, Atalia. Without further ado, let's get right to my interview with Charles. Enjoy! So today I'm here with a very special guest. I'm here with Charles Hoskinson. He is the CEO of IOHK, and he's the former co-founder of Ethereum. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and thank you for having me here at the IOHK Summit. It's been really um, insightful so far. Uh, which presentation did you like the most? Yours, obviously. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Bruce Fenton was also good. Yeah, Bruce yeah. is a wonderful public speaker. Yes. So, um, Charles, can you tell me a little bit about IOHK and its mission and what people can expect to see from this week's summit? So, IOHK is both a science and an engineering company, and uh, we apply our scientific acumen, so our ability to write papers, work with universities, professors, graduate students, and our engineering acumen towards uh, problems in the cryptocurrency space. And notionally, uh, we do this for uh, the developing world. So we're very obsessed with a Pan-African strategy, a Southeast Asian strategy, uh, where we think about things like how do we find ways to get loans to some of the poorest people in the world, or how do we find ways to solve the remittance problem so that uh, you know if a, a gal goes from Ethiopia to London and, and she sends a hundred dollars back home every month to her um, to her mother, that you know fifteen dollars isn't consumed in that transaction or something like that. So what we try to do is take a look at these broad social problems, whether they be credit problems, payment system problems, uh, problems behind land registration, business registration, and we try to solve those problems with cryptocurrencies or with blockchain technology, and we do it in a very rigorous way. So we write papers that are peer-reviewed in uh, major venues, and we try to use something called formal methods, which is basically the same engineering standards you'd see at NASA or Boeing, except for the 737. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's good to know. Right. <laughs> and so Cardano you, won't fly, fall out of the sky, I assure you. Can you tell us a little bit about Cardano and what you're doing with that project? So Cardano is kind of our, our bet on what a third-generation cryptocurrency is. Uh, so if you kind of look at the history of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin was the first. And Bitcoin was all about saying, can you create some sort of value token? We're not sure what it is. It might be digital gold. It might be a currency. You know, so it's something that holds value that you can just teleport all around the world, kind of like an email for money. Uh, and it doesn't have a central issuer. And it's basically a, a system that can be maintained by anybody. So there's no reason Bitcoin should have any value at all, but somehow, some way, Bitcoin got value. And 2013 was really the the big year for it. It, it, uh, it reached a market capitalization of about a billion dollars, and it was pretty magical to to see how quickly that ecosystem came together. The challenge with Bitcoin is it's not programmable. So while you can push value around, you can't really do things like do a crowd sale, like an ICO, or you you can't. Uh, build crypto kitties or you can't do an oracle service or something like that uh so you really can't replicate a lot of the kinds of things that you'd want to without trusted third parties so we said boy wouldn't it be really cool to 
attach a programming language to a blockchain, and in the process of doing that, uh, we'd be able to do all those things. Now, the problem with uh, th that approach is that we found out only after the fact that it really doesn't scale. It's not as interoperable with other systems. And also, there's still a lot of governance issues in the space. So while Ethereum was kind of the second generation, um, by no means is it the end-all, be-all and you know, kind of the, the end of the story. So we created Cardano as kind of an investigation of how would we take this to the next level. So let's keep what we know and love, this ability to transport value anywhere in the world, the ability to do crowd sales and be a multi-asset system. But at the same time, let's also talk a lot about how do we get this system to work with the thousand other cryptocurrencies that are on market and the legacy financial world? And also, how do we get this system to be sustainable so that it can have millions and billions of users and still work well? And also the system to be able to pay for its bills, like if it breaks or you need to fix it or maintain it, where does the money come from? If it doesn't have a central entity backing it, you need some form of a treasury mechanic. And furthermore, how do you decide on where to take the system? You need some sort of voting system to be able to do that. Uh, so this was kind of an aspirational project back in 2015. We said, ooh, those are big, lofty, great goals. Let's see how uh, crazy we can get. And we brought a lot of wonderful scientists together and engineers together, and we wrote a lot of papers, more than 40. Uh, we've written a huge amount of code, and we've been able to make very significant, meaningful contributions in all of those areas. We found great ways to scale the protocol. We found great ways to decentralize the system. We found a lot of ideas on how we can achieve interoperability with other systems, and we also have a pretty good idea of what the governance components need to look like, at least for a proof of concept. Uh, that we'll be able to get the system to the next level and for future generations of cryptocurrencies. And how is this project unique from, from others out there? I mean, how are you solving these problems? Well, the first problem is that there really wasn't a lot of rigor and there really wasn't a, a solid foundation to do or say anything in the space before we came in. So generally how these projects emerge with just one or two people get together and have a really bright idea. And they'd be pretty smart people and they'd say, hey, let's go build a cryptocurrency for X. Like, for example, uh, Sunny came up with this idea of, uh, of a hybrid proof-of-work, proof-of-stake system. So you went and created PeerCoin. And then another person said, hey, you know, how about we try to decentralize DNS? So they created Namecoin. And then you know, Dan said, hey, let's go create BitShares and create value-stable currency or decentralized exchange. So usually there was some problem that they wanted to solve. And then they went and just built something. And then it was an experiment to see if it would work or not. But the problem was that there was really no rigor behind what they were doing. So you you wouldn't actually be able to extract from the success or failure of that experiment any lessons uh, that could be ported to other projects that were meaningful. Second, you didn't actually know if the systems worked or were secure. They would work until they didn't. And didn't can be at a 1,000 users. If didn't can be at a million users. Didn't can be until a really bright hacker, like with the DAO hack, comes in and just destroys everything. So we said, look, let's let's do it the other way. So let's take a step back and get some scientists to come in. And let's just ask foundational questions. Like, what is a blockchain? You keep hearing the word, but like, what is a precise mathematical definition of what a ledger is, this blockchain is? And then what does security mean? Like, what's a security model? Like, what capability should an adversary have? Like, if you were to build an encryption suite and I say, oh, the hard disk is encrypted or your email is encrypted, you'd have an idea of what that means. And then those ciphers come with guarantees about what types of adversaries they're protected against and what types of ones they're not protected against. They even have attack names like chosen ciphertext attack or chosen plain text attack and so forth. So we said, let's take that same type of rigor and let's put it into the blockchain space and really systematically walk our way through every part. This scripting language, the ledger design, the consensus protocol, all of these different parts. And then we say, okay, once we know all these different parts, then we can start making commentary on 
basically the design space, all the things we can do, what's theoretically possible, what's impossible. So you'll hear all the time claims like half a million transactions per second or this or that. Or, you know, and so then the first question you always have to ask is, is it even possible? And under what circumstances is it possible? And for all this magic that they're promising, what are you giving up in exchange for that? Like Lamborghinis are really fast, but you probably wouldn't pull a horse trailer with one, right? It's just not the right tool for that. So while you get this great driving experience for a certain thing, it would be hell trying to pull a horse trailer with it. So similarly, if you want to get a 500,000 transaction per second system, you take a step back and say, well, I'm probably going to be giving up security, or I'm probably going to be giving up some form of reliability or availability inside the system. And so the point of Cardano was to say, let's do this in a very rigorous way, and then we can systematically stack paper after paper that's not Cardano-specific. It's actually specific. It's actually specific to our entire industry, and then once we have all of that, we can then design a beautiful system as an output of that that's perfectly parameterized for the types of environments we want to operate in. Let's say we fail, we still have all those papers, which means everybody in the entire industry gets to use it. So there's already other projects. For example, uh, QTIM is looking at the Mantis client, one of the code bases we've written. Uh, Ouroboros is being implemented by the, the guys at the Coda protocol. And so, you know, a lot of our, our core technology is not only built by, used by us for Cardano and other products that we do, but it's actually being used by other members of the industry now and for their own projects because it's, it's granite. It's a very solid foundation. So I'd say that's one of the first differentiators. The second differentiator is just simply how we write code. You know, normally how you'd write code is you have an idea of how you want to do it. You write all the code, you write some tests and then you say, okay, well, the test passed, so we think it works but you don't really get any guarantee that it does. So it works until it doesn't. So occasionally then you do a security audit or something. So you hire an auditor and they come in and use some special tools and techniques and they say, okay, it looks like it works. I, we think it's secure. But what we do is we take it up a level where we actually go from the research and we say, we're going to extract from the paper a uh, formal specification. And then that is actually a detailed mathematical description of how the system should work. Then from that mathematical description, we can actually write reference code that we can use as basically a, a kind of a, a proof of concept, a test base that you can then use to verify that the code that you've written for the system is correct. So you basically can prove, in some cases you can get a mathematical proof that the code is correct. Now, this is not done in the common industry uh, because usually software evolves too quickly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you say, oh, if I'm writing a web app or a cell phone app, well, you know, I don't have the time to spend six months writing mathematical proofs that what I've implemented correctly because maybe I'll throw that feature away in six months or something like that. When you talk about protocol development, once you get a protocol right, like TCP IP or these things, they tend to stick around for a really long time, like 10 years, 20 or 30 years and so forth. So it's probably really important that you invest the time up front to making sure that the protocol has been correctly implemented. Unfortunately, the vast majority of cryptocurrencies in the space have decided not to follow this engineering approach, which has left a landscape where most of the protocols are riddled with subtle flaws. And in some cases, really hard to detect ones. For example, with Zcash, they had a very, very subtle bug with Zcash, which, if exploited, would allow people to counterfeit coins. I mean, the whole point of these systems is that, like, the money is constrained, it's finite, yeah. and then suddenly there's this magic bug that allows you to silently create coins out of thin air. And because it's a private system, you wouldn't even know the coins existed. Uh, so the, it was, like, super, super subtle bug, but it existed in the pre-sapling library in Zcash. So this is why we choose these formal methods, and I think those two things are core differentiators. One is our, our academic peer review process that we follow, and then the other is the use of formal methods, but trying to do it in a way that doesn't slow us down so much that it takes 10 years to ship something. We'd still like to ship something 
something in a reasonable period of time. Right. And you're um, working a lot with Haskell, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what, um, that's what I was told. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how is, is Haskell, you know, in your opinion, what do you think of using Haskell as a programming language for what you're doing? Well, there are pros and cons for all programming languages. And, you know, the magical thing about if you ever want to start a fight on the Internet, uh, talk about your favorite programming language, because there's always somebody on one side or the other. But uh, what Haskell excels at and what Haskell was really designed at is translating academic research into code. So if you've taken the time to have a lot of mathematical formalism in your system, so you have lots of uh, code and excuse me, lots of, of pseudocode and a lot of algorithms and, and actual mathematical formulas, there's almost a one-to-one -one correspondence between the Haskell code you're going to end up writing and the math that's inside the system. Now, if you compare that with Java or C++ or any of these other languages, there's going to be an impedance mismatch. What you end up writing on, on the computer is going to look all very different from what you actually have in the paper. So what, it, what does it mean? It means it's actually harder to know if you've correctly implemented the paper or not. So that's one advantage of Haskell. Second, Haskell's really well-suited for distributed systems. Yeah, the, one of the biggest issues with distributed systems is that uh, you could have non-deterministic behavior because you, you'll assume that the world has a certain state, but then some other actor comes in and changes it. You're not aware of that change. So the, because those assumptions are wrong, you end up getting the wrong output. So you have all these bizarre bugs that only intermittently occur, and they can take hours, days, weeks, in some cases months to discover. In some cases, you never figure out where the system is actually failing. So if you want repeatable, concise, deterministic behavior, Functional programming actually allows you to do that, and Haskell is probably the best language of all the languages there. Furthermore, if you want to prove that your code is correct, Haskell, like OCaml and other functional languages, has a very rich ecosystem and very rich tooling that allows you to do that. So it's a heavy language, uh, but we're not the only ones who use it. Uh, it's used in the financial industry, like Standard Charter uses it, and a few others do, because they recognize the value in high-assurance systems. That said, it can slow you down. So we actually have a parallel team that's implementing Cardano and Rust. And Rust is kind of like better C. It's like what C wants to be when it grows up. It's a, it's a great language. Uh, and that team's moving very, very quickly. So they tend to move faster than the Haskell team. And what that allows us to do is see around corners. So as the Rust team builds things, they build it as quickly as humanly possible. In some cases, they go off specification. So they look like a Silicon Valley startup in that respect. And then it produces an enormous amount of data about things that can go wrong or problems that we're going to have. And then that gets fed back into our slower, more rigorous processes to update the formal specifications and to update the research and to update the Haskell code so that they don't make those mistakes with the slower machinery. So if you combine Haskell development with a prototype language, you actually end up not really sacrificing too much speed, but then you gain all the upside, which is predictable behavior, less bugs, and more maintainability. Last point is conciseness. A uh, great example, Scala is kind of like Haskell. It's also a functional language. Uh, and we implemented a full Ethereum node in Scala. And it was only around 12,000, 13,000 lines of code. As a comparison, I think Geth is around 60,000 or 70,000. So, you know, just by having less code, in some cases five to 10 times less code, I think C Bitcoin is like 120,000 lines of code. So, by having less code is a humongous maintenance advantage because there's just simply less to worry about, less to read. 
often a developer will read code four or five times more often than they write code. So if you're saying, wow, if I have 12,000 lines of code, that's going to be read four or five times for every time I'm adding a line of code to it. So I'd much rather have them only read 12,000 than 120,000 or something like that. So Haskell gives you that advantage. You get that conciseness in your representation. Got it. Yeah. And speaking of programming languages in Haskell, um, I hear that um, IOHK is doing a lot with uh, developing countries and teaching um, education and, and about blockchain and the programming languages in these countries. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So sometimes uh, you train people for the needs of a current industry. So uh, a lot of vocational training, like these uh, programming accelerators, like the Turing School or Hack Accelerator or whatever, uh, they uh, they train people how to be a JavaScript developer or Ruby developer or, you know, something like that. And they say, oh, okay, now that you're trained, you can go get some arbitrary magical job writing servers or full stack developer. And every now and then you have an industry crop up that has very special needs and demands. And you actually have to retrain people or teach people new skills uh, to be able to use that industry. Like, for example, when the iPhone first came out, you know, Steve Jobs didn't say, boy, how do we emulate the, the Windows experience and, you know, the, the Microsoft developer experience? He said, no, you're going to have to just completely learn new tools, new libraries, new things. But the iPhone kind of justified that because it, it gave you new capabilities and allowed you to do new things you couldn't do before, and it gave you access to customers you didn't have before. Well, analogously, the blockchain space allows us to do things we couldn't do before, but it does require bespoke languages and bespoke techniques and so forth. So uh, the argument is really, what is the optimal framework, given that we don't have legacy compatibility there, to teach people? And so we felt that it makes sense to create a custom training program specifically for the skills that are needed within our space. And so we piloted this program in Greece in partnership with NTU and University of Athens. And we had a small class and uh, Lars Bunyas went there. Then after Greece, we went to Barbados and it was a much larger class in partnership with the University of West Indies. Then we went from Barbados to our largest class actually in Ethiopia. Wow. And it was a really amazing experience. Actually, the Minister of Innovation Technology requested it to be an all-woman's class. And we said, okay, if you can get us all the candidates. And they said, don't worry about it at all. And he was absolutely right. We had over three hundred candidates apply. And these were just amazing women. One of them had a PhD in uh, machine learning and she actually worked on a project where she detected cancer and, and uh, uh, scans using ML. And uh, they were just unbelievable. In fact, it was hard to widow the set down from 300 to, to 23, which is what the class ended up being. And actually all 23 of the students graduated, which was unbelievable. Usually you have some attrition when you have a class. You know, People say, hey, this is not for me. I can't handle the rigor and they leave all the students stayed. Uh, and it was very challenging because they, uh, first, we didn't lower the standards at all. It was it was taught by a rigorous German mathematician. So you had like German education. But then uh, also, uh, it also, a lot of them had life stories that would make it very difficult to attend these classes. Like we had four women from Uganda that came up and one of them had to leave her daughter home. And I think her daughter was only a year and a half old. And so she didn't see her daughter for three months. Another one had to travel two hours a day on buses to actually get to the class. And some of them just didn't have internet at home. So they had to go very early in the morning to do all their homework because they didn't have an internet connection to be able to do it from home. Where do you plan on um, doing the next educational classes? Yeah, it's funny when you let it be known that you're providing jobs and education, every government wants you to do something with them. So we've had offers from Vietnam, Mongolia. Uh, actually, the Minister of Foreign Affairs from Mongolia is here at our conference. Uh, good guy to talk to. He's 
real cool dude. And then uh, Uganda is another country. We've gotten offers from Rwanda, offers from South Africa, a lot of offers in Latin America, like Argentina with love. And, uh, and you know, Lars is like, yeah, Argentina sounds great. You know, wine and cheese. And, and <laughs> that's, that's not so bad. Uh, but most likely either Mongolia or Uganda at the, at the moment. Uh, it just depends on the season and, and when we do it. Uh, certain places are not really good to, to go to during certain time periods. Like it gets insanely cold in Mongolia during the winter. It can get down to negative 50. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just impossible to get around. Um, Uganda during the summertime can get quite hot. And so it, you have to kind of be very strategic about when yeah, you do these. But likely the, uh, that either something in Africa or something in Asia. Right. Okay. And let's kind of talk a little bit more about the cryptocurrency side of things. So I read in an interview that one of your priorities is to provide access to financial tools for billions of people around the world using blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. So how do you plan to do this exactly? I mean, this is something you're pretty passionate about, right? Or just kind of providing the financial tools for these? I I just think it's fundamentally unfair that we live in a world of 7 billion people and almost half of it uh, basically by no fault of their own, just, just by losing the geographic lottery, uh, grow up in jurisdictions that don't have access to stable markets. And the consequences are that you can be a doctor, a physicist, a lawyer, an engineer, and you still drive a taxi because it, it's more profitable. Like if you go to Cuba, there's a, there's a running gag that, uh, you know, the, the doctors drive the taxis because they make more money in the tourism business than they do being a physician. It's just insane. Uh, so, I'm very passionate about looking at things on the macro scale and saying, can we change the systems in a way that they're more fair for everyone? Uh, and, you know, blockchain and crypto are just part of that conversation. There does need to be political change as well, but you never really get political change if there's only a f- small group of people at the top that run everything and everybody else in the bottom's held down by the uh, system. So we're super passionate about everything from let's just make sure that when you own land, you really own it and nobody can take it from you. Uh, there was numerous cases where we were dealing with governments in different places in the world where people would bribe the land registrar to actually just change the ownership from one deed to another deed. And then suddenly a person who'd been living on a land for three generations gets kicked off of their family's land because uh, some company basically took it from them to, to mine on it or something like that. And it only cost $100 in a bribe to do something. And it took some cases years, some cases they never got it back. You know, that's just inhuman. It's immoral. And, you know, either can just complain about it and say, oh, poor guys and move on. Or you can do something about it. And for the first time ever, we have tools that actually allow us to do something about it, something reasonable about it. Uh, and uh, it's just the privilege of a lifetime. I, I go to Ethiopia and, for example, we met with Khalid Bamba. Uh, he's the CEO of the Agricultural Transformation Agency. And this guy has the hardest job, I think, in the entire country. His job is to take the 15 million smallholder farmers in Ethiopia, grow about 85% of the food, and basically make them more productive and find a way to make sure that the food is a net food exporter instead of an importer, prevent a starvation, and gradually build wealth for them. It's a huge mandate. And he's had to do everything from like satellite map the whole country to worry about all the supply chains in the country. And so I, I sat down with him. I said, well, what are your problems? And I expected him to have some like grand thing and said, oh, yeah, my big issue right now is uh, the fertilizer that gets shipped into Djibouti grows legs and half of it doesn't arrive in Ethiopia. It seems to walk off. Or when the bags come, they're 35 pounds of fertilizer, 15 pounds of sand because somebody adulterated it. That's a simple problem. 
and it's impacting the poorest people in the world. So you say, wow, blockchain can actually do something there. We can create a system that can track and trace things as they go from one stop to another. At least we know where it's being stolen, or at least we know where it's being adulterated. Then we can start rerouting the supply chains, changing warehouses. We can actually solve that problem. That's a social problem. And just by solving that will change the lives of hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And it will mean people get to build wealth. Then you solve the next one, and then you solve the next one. And you have all these small victories, and cumulatively they add up to making a great country, and they add up to really improving people's lives. The other thing that gets us so passionate is that all these solutions are in the open domain. We don't patent anything. We don't have any intellectual property. And a lot of the cases, people steal from you, and that's that's good thing. They take your ideas and they just go run with them. So if you have something good in Ethiopia, some guy in Uganda will see it and say, yeah, I'm going to go do that too, which means you've solved both of their problems, not just the problem in Ethiopia. And, uh, and it means you can also retire and the thing will still keep going and people will still do things. Right. And actually, and, and that leads me to my next question. In your opinion, how important are open source projects for blockchain and crypto community? Because, I mean, I think it's, it's very important. It's very useful, but but I want to hear what you think about that. Yeah, you know, this is I think one of the reasons why Craig Wright is so profoundly hated in the cryptocurrency space because his whole approach is like the anti crypto. You know, you patent everything, my crypto, I control it. If you if you if you say bad things about me, I'll sue you. And actually, has begun suing people. Uh, so when you look at that kind of approach, you say, well, that's that's not the ethos of the space. The ethos of the space is we're all contributing to some common good. We don't know where it's going and we don't know uh, what it will do for society, but we do know it's probably going to have a positive impact. And we do know that we have finite time here. Might be five years, might be 10 years, might be 50 years, but we're only here finitely. And so we don't get to take the contributions with us. We get to leave them in the commons and they become property of everybody. It's almost like good art. You know, if you create it, it, in some way, it becomes a common good. You know, you, the artist, no longer really own it. It's the people's art. And the same thing happens here. We're creating something for everybody. So it's deep in the ethos of our company and, frankly, of our industry to say that every paper we write is under a Creative Commons license. We'll never pursue a patent. We'll never pursue intellectual property. And if we stay in business, great. If we go out of business, then we've at least gotten the space somewhere. Yeah. And then people can pick that up and take it somewhere else. Yeah, I think those, I mean, that, those are powerful words. And I think that this is a community for the people, by the people, and open source is so important. So I'm a big believer in that, in that message that mm -hmm. you're promoting. Speaking of, actually, we're kind of shifting now to the enterprise side of things, because today in your speech, you kind of hinted towards a new um, enterprise blockchain solution that's in the works. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Um, I think 2019 is about enterprise blockchain, so that's really exciting for me to hear about. Yeah, we announced Atala, and uh, Atala. it's named after a butterfly here in Florida. Uh, it's really pretty butterfly. highly recommend you look at it. I was actually going to uh, re release some butterflies on stage, but they... They didn't want to source them for me, oh, and they God. said I technically couldn't release them indoors. And I said, well, how much is the fine? <laughs> that would have been <laughs> awesome, by I the know, way. I know. I would have wow. loved to have done that. That would have been great. <laughs> we found this one supplier that uh, provides them for weddings, but they were a bit too, too expensive for a reasonable amount. But uh, anyway, Atala is basically an enterprise framework, kind of like Fabric or uh, Corda or you know any of these other systems. And basically the point of, of Atala is to – 
be that, that solutions provider when governments come to us and they say, hey, we need a municipal currency or, hey, we need a property registration system or, hey, we need a supply chain management system or even simple problems like a university coming to us and saying, hey, uh, we'd like you to create a credential verification system. So if someone asserts they're a graduate here or they're a doctor, you can check that in, you know, from that credential they provided you and verify it's legitimate without having to even call the university. Uh, so all of that stuff does require some form of a framework. So a bunch of libraries and modules that you can take and rapidly then build a product that you deploy to the end user. Now, the reason why this all can't be done on one blockchain on, on an open system is that just simply can't scale. It's, and also, in some cases, it just makes no sense to try to integrate these types of solutions with an open system. Like, for example, health records. It doesn't really make sense to try to use Ethereum or Cardano to be a broker for your health records. Maybe for transmitting between different enclaves, like hashes or you know uh, notifications, but the actual movement of the data or the attestation of the data, that's probably subject to heavy regulation. And it's probably subject to all kinds of business logic that it would be very expensive or in some cases impossible to do in Solidity or Plutus or these types of languages. So you need some form of a framework that can capture that. Now, here's the advantage, though, and why it's beneficial to Cardano. Once you've captured it, you probably have given every user of the system digital credentials. So you now have a common interface, a wallet, that you can use to send value to. And through the power of sidechains, you can go from a permissionless ledger like Cardano to a permissioned ledger like Atala and back. So I'll give you a great use case. So imagine the exchange of the future, let's say 2022, 2023, when all exchanges, when all cryptocurrencies support sidechains. Because at some point they'll come. Instead of sending your Bitcoin to another Bitcoin address when you send it to Coinbase, you'll actually be doing a sidechain transaction to a custom ledger that Coinbase controls. And perhaps maybe the regulator even controls part of it. And uh, when it goes there, it has all kinds of features that would be an antithetical to everything Bitcoin stands for. Like, for example, they can freeze accounts, they can reverse transactions, all kinds of things. Because you'd probably want the exchange to be able to do that. For example, if they get hacked, you'd like them to be able to recall the money and get it back, right? And so it's super important uh, that uh, there exist some capabilities for this. And you don't really have a privacy or a control issue there because you've already lost all privacy doing business with exchange. You've gone through compliance. They have control of the private keys. So, you know, why does it really matter that that address is still on the Bitcoin system at this point? You frankly want to have more protection. So I think there needs to be more discussion about blurring the lines between a permissioned ledger, an enterprise ledger, and a permissionless system and start talking about them as all one spectrum. And basically, there's clusters of solutions that make a lot of sense to do with an enterprise blockchain. And then there's clusters of solutions that make a lot of sense to do with an open and permissionless system and build bridges between these two systems. So you can seamlessly move users, value, and information between the two. And then you end up having this big ecosystem where everything just kind of talks to each other, kind of like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. And it all just works, you know, because the consumer is not going to care. They're going to move from one enclave to the other. And you don't want to really alert them. By the way, you're leaving Atala and you're entering Cardano or you're leaving Atala, you're entering Ethereum. You just want them to have that same user experience regardless of where they happen to be and for everything to behave predictably. Right. So... You're saying, so right now, a lot of these enterprise blockchains are permissioned blockchains, but you're saying that they can be permissioned in permissionless, or pub, pub, public, sorry. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, first, the question is who controls the, the ledger? So that's the permission permissionless. Is it controlled by a static quorum that doesn't change or only a, you know, a special group of actors get to run it? 
or is it an open system where anybody can participate? And then is it a private system or a public system in that the data within and the capabilities of the system are globally accessible or are they only accessible to a special group of actors? So you could be anywhere in that spectrum. And uh, some cases you can be permissioned but public. So for example, a credential verification system is an example of that where the universities aren't gonna change. They're probably gonna be the consensus nodes of the system and they're gonna be the ones who have right access to be able to put things into the system. But you'd like it to be an open system that anybody can join because you can't predict which employer and which which student is going to be you know, checking out credentials or you know verifying credentials or these types of things. So you know you can mix and match, and uh, there's all kinds of different configurations. My point is that these systems right now don't talk to each other. They're kind of one-offs and they're all isolated and siloed. And what you need is basically a lot of focus on moving data actors and value between these different systems. So you can move between the exchange and an open ledger. You can move between the health record system and the voting system and uh, you know your supply chain system or something like that. For example, the only way we're probably going to get those 15 million farmers in Ethiopia into a cryptocurrency-like system is by getting them into a supply chain system. And they need to be in a supply chain system to adhere to international mandates for fair trade and carbon reduction, sustainable farming practices. And so they have no comprehension or desire to be in Bitcoin or these things. They say, who cares about that? But, oh, yeah, they're, now that they're in a supply chain, they're actually in the system. I mean, if that system's interoperable with Cardano, then somebody can say, hey, I can now build a product that can touch 15 million people that have never been accessible before. And then you can leave it up to the world to decide what products they want to deploy to them. Right. So basically, in a nutshell, Atalia is creating interoperability for enterprises. Is that the main point here? Or? Yeah, Atala is like Fabric or these other ledgers in that it does the things they do. We just have a different philosophy on how to do it. But the big USP, I'd say, of Atala is the fact that we're designing with interoperability in mind. So when you deploy Atala, you'll get a guarantee that if you want to, you can talk to the Cardano network. And by extension, you can use that to talk to the Ripple network, the Bitcoin network, the Ethereum network, you know, these types of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really, uh, that's really the key there. You know, when you look at Fabric, or you look at Kadena or these other systems, they don't think too much about how do we touch the cryptocurrency world. It's almost like you're either enterprise or you're not. You know, you're, you're fabric or you're Ethereum, but you're, you're not both. Right. And we look at it as a spectrum instead. And so if you deploy this type of product, then you know that somewhere down the road, if you really want to, you can make your customers now suddenly be able to accept crypto or work within the crypto ecosystem. And that's, I think, a very powerful USP. For sure. Are you able to tell us um, who is currently using the solution or in the works for using the yeah, solution? I'm several, curious to know. Yeah, we have several MOUs signed, uh, okay. probably the most prominent of which is we're going to build a utility currency um, for Ethiopia for the city of Addis Ababa. And that's about 6 million users, we think. And so it's a pretty big project. And basically, you'll be able to, to pay your power bill, your electric bill, uh, you know, your water bill, and also transportation costs with a token. And kind of like a digital burr. So we have an MOU signed with them, and uh, we're right now negotiating how we'd actually roll a contract out. My preference would be to combine it with an identity card, but it's a, it's a pretty complicated product. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of the types of things we're looking at. Uh, we've actually been offered a lot of MOUs and uh, a lot of potential contracts. It's just trying to find the right product market fit because we don't want to overextend ourselves. You know, this is kind of new for us, and if we take too many contracts, it'll be a, a bit counterproductive. 
Uh, we have also signed an MOU with a major shoe manufacturer. We can't quite mention their name yet. Oh, darn. Uh, but the, it's for anti Yeah, I know. It's for anti-counterfeiting. And, <laughs> you know, these types of things. Okay. And we'll make announcements when we're, we're ready to. Yeah, well, I think that's really interesting. Because like I said, I think 2019 is all about enterprise blockchain. So really curious to hear more about that. In terms of other projects that you're excited about, are there any other projects out there that you think are doing great things for blockchain and crypto? And if so, what are those projects? Well, uh, some of the people who are doing great things are here, uh, like Promode uh, from uh, Unit E is here. He's a professor at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and uh, he's the creator of Dandelion and Prism and all of these other really cool protocols. And he's basically building like a really cool cryptocurrency project, and he's doing a very rigorous academic peer-reviewed way. So we have a lot of respect for his work. I also have a lot of respect for Silvio McCauley and the Algorand project out of MIT. I think that they have a great future, and uh, we we talk to them all the time, and we kind of have a friendly rivalry there. Uh, that's quite nice. Um, we also have a, you know, a lot of professional respect for the Ethereum Foundation and the work that they do. Uh, you know, we, we have a love-hate relationship there, but uh, at the end of the day, they are kind of the industry leader and you know, their, their successes are the industry successes. And, and you're mistakes. a former co-founder of Ethereum. Yes. Right, yeah. Uh, but uh, I'm not on the best of terms with the other uh, co-founders. So, okay. so there isn't a professional bias. If anything, it would be in the other direction. But, you know, their, their victories are the industry's victories and their losses are the industry's losses. So it is important to understand that, you know, we all have to stand together for us to succeed. Lastly, what can the industry expect from blockchain and crypto in 2019 and beyond, in your opinion? I think we're going to see a recovery, um, not a total recovery, but some continued recovery from the collapse of 2018. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll see a lot more professionalization in terms of development and science. And we'll also see uh, a lot of new money entering the space thanks to institutional investment and the STO revolution. That's definitely coming. And actually, enterprise blockchain will bring a lot of money into the space as well. So, uh, so I think we'll continue to see growth. You know, if we, you had to color code your industry, you know, green doing great and growing, uh, yellow kind of warning sign, red dying. Coal industry is red right now. It's not looking so good. Oil industry is kind of yellowish. They're, they're not as good as they want to be. And crypto is definitely bright green. It's uh, It's got a great future. Right. Yeah. And I just interviewed Tim Draper, who's all about Bitcoin. And he's a big believer that the price of Bitcoin will hit 250K by 2022 or 2023. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But he I mean, that's super ex exciting. And I'm always very um, optimistic after speaking with Tim. Yeah, he's a very inspirational guy. <laughs> he um, is. 250. That's a that's a pretty crazy number. I, I don't even I don't even know how to comprehend it. Right. Well, I guess we just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. Um, Charles, do you want to share any additional thoughts before we um, end the show? I know we're running a little bit low on time and we're obviously at this IOHK Summit. So anything you want to share with the listeners before we sign off? Well, I'd just like to thank everybody for listening. And if uh, you want to know more, go to IOHK.io. That's our website. And check us out. Right. And how can our listeners connect with you? Twitter is probably my best uh, option. It's IOHK underscore Twitter. Uh, uh, IOHK underscore Charles. Excuse me. Uh, that's my uh, Twitter handle. And uh, I have about 107,000 followers. It's a good way of distinguishing my account from all the imposter accounts. Yes. Charles is a major influencer. So everyone should give him a follow and, and you know, keep up to date with what uh, IOHK is working on the projects there. And uh, yeah, this was a wonderful interview. So thank you again, Charles. Cheers. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find further information in the show notes to learn more about Charles Hoskinson and his recent projects. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Crypto Chick Podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, if you have time, please leave me a review. I enjoy hearing your feedback. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at RachelWolf00, on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at Blockchain and Bikinis. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 